Hello everyone, it's Mark Goodacre here. Welcome to the NT Pod, the podcast all about the New Testament and Christian origins. It's episode 94, and today we're back to the Gospel of Jesus' Wife to review Ariel Sabar's Veritas. Regular listeners will know that I've had an interest in the Gospel of Jesus' Wife for some time. I recently recorded four episodes of the podcast, episodes 87 to 90, to talk about it. And if any of you aren't familiar with some of the details about this, then by all means go back and listen to those. I'm not going to go over the background of the Gospel of Jesus' Wife and so on here, except insofar as it relates to Ariel Sabar's book. I found also, I, I went back and looked at a few of my old blog posts on this, going back to 2012, and I was horrified to see that I'd written over 50 blog posts on this. Well, I say I wrote, one or two of them were guest posts by other people involved in the business like Francis Watson and Andrew Bernhard and more about them to come. But this episode is a review of this remarkable new book by Ariel Sabar. The book is called Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man and the gospel of Jesus's wife. You might recall that in episode 90 of the NT pod. What I did was I looked at Ariel Sabar's astonishing article that he wrote for The Atlantic back in 2016, in which he pointed to the owner of the Gospel of Jesus's Wife and extensively interviewed him. And it was just the most amazing piece of investigative journalism. Everybody that read it really found it utterly compelling and enjoyable. And if you found that piece enjoyable, then this book is definitely for you. You will really enjoy the quality of the research, the quality of the writing. It really is a page turner. I was very happy to get a copy of this book a week or so ago and uh, I'm just going to offer a few of my reflections on it. Now one thing to say about Veritas is that it's not simply a longer padded out version of Sabah's article from The Atlantic. For the subject matter of that article which focuses on Fritz, we have to wait all the way to Act 4 of the book's five acts. And while it's kind of true that that's the most compelling part of the book, at least for this reader, what comes before it in Acts 1 to 3 is also totally gripping. Now what Sabar does is he goes right back to the beginning. And this is something where it turns out that he actually himself had a ringside seat. He was the only journalist in the room in September 2012 when Karen King first announced the papyrus, the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, to a Coptic conference out in Rome. And he tells this extraordinary story about how the Coptologists in the room were all quite sceptical as soon as this thing was announced. But then what Sabar does is shows how that scepticism gradually rose as different people weighed in and saw different features of this problematic papyrus. Most space is given to Andrew Bernhard. Andrew Bernhard is depicted in the book as something of a David to Karen King's Goliath. Bernhard is not a scholar at a major university. He doesn't have a PhD. He does have a book to his name on uh, Greek non-canonical gospels. In fact, it was one that uh, I was the series editor for, which came out sometime before the Gospel of Jesus Wife affair uh, came about. And he used to have a very successful internet site, gospels.net. Some of you will know about his work from reading my blog posts and listening to the recent podcast. But Andrew Bernhard gets a really central role in this because he really was 
was the person more than anybody else who noticed that this fragment wasn't just a patchwork of phrases of the Coptic Gospel of Thomas discovered at Nag Hammadi in 1945. It was a very particular edition of the Gospel of Thomas from Michael Grondin's interlinear of the Gospel of Thomas on the internet. And, and Bernhard speculated from very early on, within weeks of the thing having been announced, he speculated that a forger might have copied from Grondin's interlinear, something that over the next two or three years became crystal clear in fact that in fact that was the case. So Sabar has interviewed Bernhard, he even gets a picture in the book and Michael Grondin gets his own picture in the book too. He's another of the people who plays a kind of a starring role in this story. And the way that Sabar tells this part of the story, he, he does it where you see, if you like, the might of the ivory tower, the prestige of Harvard pitted against the amateur, if brilliant, scholar who is simply equipped with a great knowledge of Coptic and a really keen eye. And it's just fascinating to watch how the story develops in Sabah's telling of it. Sabah also gives attention to the role played by Christian Askeland and the importance of this Lycopolitan John. You might remember that there was another fragment that the, that the owner of the Gospel of Jesus' wife, Walter Fritz, provided with the Gospel of Jesus' wife. It was a piece, apparently, of the Gospel of John, which Christian Askeland showed, beyond any reasonable doubt, was a forgery. It was written in this Lycopolitan dialect long after that had actually died out. And, and it turned out it was very clearly copied from a book also that was found on the internet. So Christian Askeland also gets his picture in the book. Now, this was all a really gripping read, but to those of us, I suppose it's not many of us, but to, to those of us that were involved in that story right from the beginning, who, who were, I, I mean, I, I was talking regularly at this stage to Andrew Bernhard and to Christian Askeland, and, and I was blogging about it, sometimes um, perhaps too obsessively. So for people like me, there weren't many surprises, even though it was fascinating seeing how the story unfolds. But for me, where the book really comes alive is in Act 4, where we meet Walter Fritz. And this is where Sabar's investigative journalism really itself takes centre stage. Sabar ends up writing almost a mini biography of Fritz. And every detail is fascinating some of it incredibly sad there's a there's a, there's a really interesting and 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 terribly upsetting vignette about something that Fritz alleges happened to him when he was nine years old and Sabar does full research on this and talks about this and the effect that it's had on Fritz's life and there's Really, if you enjoyed the Atlantic article, and I hate using the word enjoy because it doesn't seem the right word to use, but if you found the Atlantic article compelling, you'll find Act 4 on Walter Fritz even more compelling in this book. It has to be said that the characters at the centre of the drama, 
other than Walter Fritz, other than Andrew Bernhard, the people who argued that the gospel of Jesus's wife was authentic, Karen King, Roger Bagnall, Anne-Marie Leyendijk, they do come in for quite a bit of criticism in the book. I would say Bagnall probably comes in for more criticism than Leyendijk, but less than Karen King. And this is where it gets a little sensitive for those of us who are in the field, because these are our colleagues. I, I actually don't know any of them personally, uh, particularly closely. I've met Karen King a couple of times. But of course, I hope it goes without saying that I'm a huge admirer of all of uh, their scholarship. The, the, the difficulty is that I think people that know them and know their work intimately will find this material quite a tough read. And I think especially Karen King's friends and colleagues are going to find a lot of this uh, a tough read. There's no question that Sabah goes right in with quite a heavily critical stance on the way that Karen King conducted herself during this affair. So I leave those comments to, to them. I think one thing, one one reason that Bagnall and Leyendijk maybe come out of this just a little bit better out of Sabah's book is simply that they're quoted in the book and so they, they get a chance, that, that their recent comments are quoted, they, they, they react to Sabah's investigation, whereas it seems that Karen King chose not to respond to any of what um, Sabah says, so she doesn't actually get a right of reply except for the right of reply that's already embedded in her public statements and in the statements she made to Sabah back in 2012 when he interviewed her then and in 2016. So, so her voice is very clearly heard, but it's always filtered through what is quite a withering critique by Sabah himself. So I do flag that up as, as something that's definitely going to be an issue for some people reading the book. When we get to Act 5 of the book, we do have some new revelations. I'm not going to make this podcast really spoiler heavy because I think lots of these things are things that have more impact if you read it yourself within the context of the narrative. And usually Sabar is pretty nuanced and pretty balanced and tries really, really hard to be as accurate as he can. So to try and summarise his points won't quite carry it. But I will say that I was, I hate using cliches like gobsmacked. What shall I say? I was really shocked by the discussion of the supposed scientific analysis in the 2014 Harvard Theological Review, I was genuinely shocked by the state, by the the, the the business there. I also found Sabah's discussion of the history and context of Harvard Divinity School quite revealing. Some of the material in Act Five, I did think to myself. I'm not sure about the judgments here. But nevertheless, even where I disagreed with Sabah, I found his research impeccable and his attempt to be thorough, fair, accurate was really impressive. So were there any disappointments in the book? I have to admit to one, and this is going to sound kind of self-serving and so on, but I, <laughs> I actually play a really minor role in the book. Um, I do get, I think, a page or so. The moment where I come into the story is where Sabah talks about how Bernhard published his research about the interlinear 
Thomas appearing on my blog, what had happened was uh, Andrew Bernhard and I had been talking about this and I said to Andrew that I would love to post his research on my blog and Andrew had willingly done that. And uh, that's the moment where I get uh, a mention. I suppose it's it was it was in a way it was a sobering experience because when I think of the whole gospel of Jesus wife affair I do tend to think of it as something that I was personally quite heavily involved in on the side of those who were skeptical about authenticity but I think I think what Sabar is doing quite reasonably is he is setting this up as a bit of a David and Goliath story and I think having too many tenured academics at places like Duke it, it, it kind of spoils that story a little bit maybe that's unfair um, it may just be that I have an inflated sense of my own importance when I look at it so I'm just going to be honest and confess that I was a little disappointed not to find myself in the story uh, more often I mean I I felt that I did play a role in things like the discovery of certain elements of the forgery, uh, not just in publicising other people's uh, material. I was really surprised equally that Francis Watson didn't play a bigger role in the story. Francis Watson really was the first person to blow open this as a forgery. He, he speculated really early on that this was a patchwork from the Coptic Gospel of Thomas, and the fact that he saw that so quickly and made a case so compellingly, I thought deserved more space than it got in Sabar's book. It's there, but it's nowhere near as big in the narrative as Andrew Bernhardt's contribution. Incidentally, that was also something that I broke on my blog. I published Watson's piece on my blog. I asked, I asked Francis Watson if I could, and he said, great, go for it. And I think it's to this day still the most read blog post that I have. So... Francis's work is marginalised too. So that's part of the same pattern that certain scholars' work is marginalised. And there are other people missing from the story too. I think that is just a product of, of having to tell a compelling kind of story. Another person missing completely from the story is Owen Jarrus. Now, Owen Jarrus was somebody in life science who was investigating the provenance of this from pretty early on and there were several of us that knew that Walter Fritz was very likely the owner slash forger of this papyrus before we read it in the Atlantic. I hadn't, I, I don't claim any credit whatsoever for that, it's just that I had read things that Owen Jarris had said and that Christian Askeland had said and I talked offline with Christian and Andrew so I already knew that Walter Fritz was the forger long before I read the Atlantic article, I should say. I suspected that he was the, the forger just because of the brilliant work that other people had done. So it, it, there's, there's no question that what Sabar did was a fantastic piece of investigative journalism that really uh, discovered all sorts of things that that none of us even had the vaguest clue of. But but even so, I was I was a little disappointed not to see Owen Jarris's role mentioned there. Maybe it's because, you know, it, it's it's a fellow journalist and Sabar really, really, really has done all that heavy lifting. So it's a minor point, but it's just something that, that I couldn't help noticing. Likewise, also Lisa Wangsness, uh, who wrote for the Boston Globe, she's mentioned uh, fairly regularly in the book. But I felt that her work in 2015 was absolutely crucial in blowing open the forgery because it was through conversations that Andrew Bernhard and I had with her 
that Harvard eventually released the owners interlinear. And it was when we saw the owners interlinear that we realized beyond any reasonable doubt, the forger had copied straight out of Michael Grondin's blog. It was it was absolutely devastating revelation. So I thought Lisa deserved a bit of credit there as well. But but the thing is, this is not an academic thesis. Sabar's not written an academic dissertation. I'll tell you what he has written. He's written a five-star book. It is so compelling a read. The depth and the quality of the research, the lucidity of the writing, the sharpness of the insights, the grasp of the field. I mean, I struggle sometimes to get on top of this very, very narrow field that those of us working in New Testament and Christian origins are working in. Sabah has managed to get a really good feel for some of the complex textual detail at the same time as having a really interesting and insightful, even if not everyone will agree with it, reading of the complex ideologies and characters in our field. And that really is something of an achievement. Everyone reading this book will learn something, not just about themselves and about our culture and about sexism, but also about the way in which people navigate their way through this really complex, difficult field of doing ancient history and what it means to be doing that as a 21st century person. So it really is, from me, an absolutely five-star review. I just say, go and read this book. And yet, When I finished reading the book this last weekend, I felt strangely deflated. Once the scintillating tales finished, I just found myself thinking, although this appeals to me far more than The Da Vinci Code, at least The Da Vinci Code's fictional. And I think by the end of it, one of the reasons I felt just so sad was that How much of our time has Fritz's forgery wasted? I mean, the untold damage done, really, to people's careers and and lives here. And even just to be selfish again for a moment, the hours I spent examining this and blogging about it and talking to people about it, podcasting on it, what are the lessons here? I think we're going to be processing those for years to come. And, and I confess for myself that for myself that I sometimes wish that I'd not got involved. I think it is always going to be a really painful business. And, and Sabah's book brings that home brings that home in a really quite profound and moving way for someone like me. And I'm sorry to end on such a downbeat, but I'm afraid that at the end of this, I just felt Do you know what? There are just no winners here. There are no winners. Ariel Sabar's book is called Veritas. A Harvard professor, a con man and the gospel of Jesus' wife. It's published by Doubleday and it's now out. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the NT Pod. I hope to be along again soon with another episode. In fact, I think I've got a real treat coming up. I'll announce that in due course. You can find me on the web at podacre.blogspot.com. Look for me on Twitter at Goodacre, or you can find the NT Pod's page on Facebook. It's always good to have your company. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.